Hi, this is Jim Swilly. Welcome to Metron Live. Metron is a Greek word that means sphere of influence. I believe in living your best life possible, and that's the reason for this podcast. This is my Metron. Now let me help you discover yours. The only announcements I have is we will be back in the theater on first Sunday of um, September, which I believe is the 4th. Jonah, uh, my son Jonah will be doing music. He's in He's in Europe for a two-week tour. Last I heard from him a couple days ago, he was in Croatia. They, they were in Croatia playing in some place that looked like the Roman Colosseum. It's very cool. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we'll be back first Sunday of October. Those of you that may not be regulars here today, uh, and we've, the last several weeks we've been picking up a lot of first-timers, so I, I don't want to assume you know this, but we Metron has just celebrated its eighth anniversary. We've been meeting for the last eight years uh, at the uh, Landmarks Midtown Art Cinema, which is a, a very cool um, independent uh, cinema here in Atlanta. Um, during the pandemic, we stopped meeting altogether and went totally streaming. We've done a soft opening where I just do um, the first Sundays of the month in the theater. So that's that's an always. You can always always know that on first Sundays we will um, we will be in the theater. Other Sundays I will be always streaming at 11. I could do it anytime, but I like to keep the continuity you're used to meeting at this time. So, um, yeah, did you see that, Carl? That was cool, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Carl Ritz, was it Jeff Daniels you read lines with? This uh, Carl, does he does extra work in a lot of uh, movies, and he did had some scenes with Jeff Daniels this week. That was cool. Anyway, um, the biggest announcement is we will, we are having meditation weekend number 16. Uh, it's going to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it will be October the 29th and 30th. So that's cool. Uh, we'll be sort of, um, coordinating with all Hallows Eve which which they celebrate real big in Chattanooga. So that, that'll be a, a neat time to be up there. And it looks like a lot of you are already signed on. Some of y'all are just like, I think you just keep your finger over the button. You're like, say when, say when, where we go to it. I mean, some of y'all get rooms so fast. It's I, I think it's like a, you should win a, a prize for it. Um, that's cool, Carl. Jeff Daniels is one of my favorites. Um, hey, Connie Sue. Hey, Constance. Yeah, Constance had a birthday this week. So uh, blessings to you. Anyway, um, affirmations. Let's do about three of those. We'll do about three breaths. And then I got a, I got a lot to say today. Um, I am blessed. I am a blessing. I am. When I point to me, I say it. When I point to you, you say it. Say it out loud, but put, put, let your vocal cords, put the energy out there into the atmosphere. Um, I am healthy. I am health. I am. Ken, you're not saying them. You're saying them quietly. <laughs> I don't need any attitude. <laughs> I said, you're not saying it. Yes, I am. Well, I couldn't hear you. All right. 
How much is the the delays? Like two seconds when you when I say it live and then you see it there. That probably is a little disorienting. Hey, Will. I think Will had a birthday this week too. Also, um, happy birthday to uh, Pastor Will, who is ordained with Metro. Um, I am whole. I heard you that time. Good. I am wholeness. I am. Uh, hey, Elwood. I am um, free. I am freedom. I am. All right, let's uh, let's add some breath to that and create some synergy with the uh, affirmations and the breathing. We're going to go in through the nose and hold it, out through the mouth. Let's go in, hold, exhale, inhale, exhale. Think of it as a meditation exercise that sort of cleanses your palate and gets you ready for the main course. Uh, inhale. Exhale. Beautiful. All right. Well, I affirm that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach liberty to the captives. And so for the next few moments, I'm going to be walking in my calling. I'm going to be doing the thing the main thing I was put on the earth to do and um, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And this morning I've just uh, spirits been, been and is very talkative. So um, I want to give plenty of time to that. Um, you could technically call what I'm going to talk about today a part three to, and I don't even remember the title that I've used, but it's the thing I've been teaching on for the last, I, I didn't totally go there last week, but the previous two weeks, uh, whatever we, Avery, I don't remember, whatever we titled this, uh, we'll, um, we'll call this part three, because I want to, I, I want to pick up sort of where I left off, and nearly everybody that's uh, privately messaged me about about uh, these things that I've ministered recently, they've all said, "Please don't stop. You need you need to you need to keep going deeper with this because we we need to hear it. We need we need really to be saturated with it. And as long as I continue to hear Spirit speak, then I will um, stay in this vein. Um, in John chapter fourteen. And I'm going, to, I'm going to quote these verses out of the King James Version. Um, John chapter 14, Jesus says in the KJV, um, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are, King James says mansions. The, the, Jesus never actually used the word mansion, but I'll get to that in a moment. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, that you, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, uh, let me give you three points of context to this. And I'm actually going to refer to some other th 
things in the chapter later on. But that's those are the first seven verses of what we call John chapter 14. Scriptures were not originally written in chapters and verses. They were added later. And um, uh, the, the, the chapters and verses are, are, are sort of a double-edged sword. They help us locate passages of Scripture. But they also have created this concept of, of sound bites where um, we don't get the full message that was being said by Jesus from one of the prophets or by Paul. And uh, I, I saw this uh, phrase this week that really I thought, oh, I'm going to make that one of mine. I, I use the word bibliolatry a lot, but I saw it, which bibliolatry is the um, the worship of the Bible as as an entity that needs to be deified. Um, bibliolatry is, is kind of another way to talk about legalism or fundamentalism, but it's but it's the actual worshiping of the Bible as sort of the, I heard one person say that uh, people treat it like it's the fourth uh, person of, of a trinity. And the Bible writers would be horrified by that idea. Anyway, somebody this week used the, uh, used the phrase um, text jacking. Uh, when you text jack something, it's when you take a verse of scripture out of its context and hijack it. You make it, you make it say something that it didn't mean to say. A um, couple of things I want to read to you, and I'm still talking about the context, but uh, this is a quote by um, Martin Trench, a very prolific writer, very cool theologian. And I love this quote. He says, when people say the Bible clearly says, I mean, do you ever hear that? Excuse me. Do you ever hear people say, you know, the Bible's, the Bible clearly says, I think no, you must not have read it because it doesn't clearly say. But he says, when people say the Bible clearly says, what they're actually saying is, I believe that my mind can instantly understand the work of an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God simply by a cursory reading of a passage in English. The fact that I live thousands of years after the culture that wrote it, thousands of miles away, multiple languages, cultures, and worldviews removed from the original authors and hearers doesn't matter. I don't need to do any research. My brain is so almighty that I can understand the creation of the universe instantly by accepting every English word I read in a woodenly literal fashion. And rather than being open-minded to new ideas or changing my views as my knowledge and understanding grow, I will spend the rest of my life defending my current understanding. <laughs> um, if you want a copy of that, scroll down. It's, it, I posted it a few days ago on my page. I, I love that. I remember one time standing in the parking lot of uh, uh, Church of the Now, and some guy was challenging me on something, and he said, he said, and another thing I don't like about you, he said, what's all this stuff you're always talking about? Original languages, original languages. What does that even mean? And I said, well, you know, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? And he said, well, it most certainly was. Uh, I can read English, and it's I, my Bible's in English. I, said, I know, but that's a translation. Uh, I mean, you know, Jesus didn't speak English, and he spoke Aramaic, and the Old Testament was written in 
Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek and the Septuagint was translated from the Hebrew to the Latin to the Greek. I mean, when I talk about original languages, I'm talking about getting to the original the original purpose of what God said. Like, here's the, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with a um, interpreter, but uh, interpretation is, is, is challenging. Like I remember years ago, I was preaching at a, a, a big church down in the country of Panama, about 5,000 people there. And I had a really good interpreter. This guy, because uh, I don't speak Spanish, this guy was really in the flow with me and a good interpreter well, they, they get so in tandem with you, it's like you nearly become one person. I've, I've only had it with a few interpreters, but there's a few of them that will like sort of tap into your anointing when you're preaching. And there's, there's no air between what you say and what they say. It's like as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it comes out of their mouth. And this guy was, we were just in a flow and it was really going well until I said, so I was talking about some guy and I said, this guy thought he was really cool. And the interpreter right there on the stage, he looked at me and he said, I don't understand what you mean. I said, you know, he was, he was cool. I was trying to explain to him the concept of what it means to be cool. And he said, you mean he was cold? And I said, no, 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 I don't mean like his temperature. We're, we're on, all these people are staring at us having this discussion about language. And uh, he said, I don't understand. I said, you know, he was like, he was like, like cool, man. Like he was with it. I'm, how do I explain cool? to a Panamanian who it, they don't, it's not in their vernacular. And uh, finally he came up with something. He said, you mean like, like Chevere? And he said something like that. I said, I guess. And when he said that, the people, there, there must've been some word that was sort of, uh, sort of similar. But the, the a literal translation is still always gonna be a paraphrase because the words, have lots of shades of meaning. So, two things I want to tell you about the context of John 14, John chapter 14. First of all, uh, chapter 14 is a continuation of chapter 13. Chapter 13, it's a continuation of thought. Chapter 13 is when Jesus is in the Last Supper with his disciples and he says, um, um, one of you is going to deny me. One of you is going to betray me. And Peter says, well, they can, but I never will. And Jesus, the, the last part of what we call chapter 13 was, uh, he says, I know you think you mean that, but before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. Now that's where chapter 13 ends. Chapter 14 begins with, let not your heart be troubled. It's a continuation of thought. And initially he's speaking to Peter. Did I say Peter? I said Peter, right? Seems like I said John. I meant Peter. If I didn't say Peter, it's what I meant. It's in the Gospel of John, but it's talking about Peter. Um, so basically what he's saying is, is you will deny me three times, comma, but let not your heart be troubled. Meaning this isn't going to be a deal breaker for us. I mean, we're, you, it's, we'll, we'll still have a relationship after this and you will still have a ministry. And you know the story about how after the resurrection, Jesus appears on the beach and he talks to Peter and he asks him three times if he loves him. And uh, so their, their uh, fellowship was not broken. Jesus said, when he said, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house are many rooms. 
He didn't say mansions. I don't know why those guys in the 17th century translated it mansion because a house has rooms in it. And it's the Greek word mone, which means a place of ministry. So basically what he's saying is um, it, it's an ultimate homage to diversity. Of, and I don't just mean racial diversity. I mean all types of people. Because he's basically saying, Peter, I know you think you mean that. But you're going to deny me. But let not your heart be troubled. There's still going to be a room for you in the house. You, you will not be uh, evicted from the house of the Father. Um, and when you read it in that context, it takes on a completely different meaning. And then a couple of weeks ago, I used um, uh, the, out of the, the mirror translation by uh, Francois Dutois. And um, of all, I love all the translations. There's, I use many different ones. But the mirror translation has the closest, um, the closest interpretation of John 14, 6 I've ever, see, I've ever seen. John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I remember when I started teaching um uh, Christian universalism or ultimate reconciliation, that was the number one verse that got, uh, I, I got clobbered with it a lot. Somehow, well, before I, before I tell you about the mirror translation, let me read to you, uh, I've never met this guy, but I, I this uh, Jacob Wright, but I share a lot of his stuff online. Uh, let me just read what he wrote and then I'll get to the mirror translation. Stay with me because this is really good. I've, I've got to, I have to work through this part before we, before it kicks in. And when it kicks in, it's going to rock your world. Um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No, no one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. Today, I would like to discuss this statement. Typically, this statement has been interpreted by many Christians as an exclusive statement, but I would like to show how it can and should be interpreted as an inclusive statement. Uh, statement. Usually when you hear this verse, it is a Christian trying to use it to basically say that you must be a Christian by saying the sinner's prayer or believing the correct things about Jesus in order to go to heaven instead of hell. This is just not what the verse says. Rather, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Actually, King James says, no man comes to the Father. So if you're going to take it really literally, it means uh, women and children can't be saved. Anyway, he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. This is the same as saying, everyone who comes to the Father through me, everyone who comes to the Father comes through me. Um, it's like saying, no one is alive on earth but through breathing the air. Yes, and everyone who is alive on earth is breathing air. In other words, everyone who has a relationship with the Creator as has it through the Spirit of Christ at work within them, whether they know it or not. Jesus was simply pointing to himself as the incarnation of this reality. I agree with that. Uh, Christ was a universally ever-present reality before he assumed the body of Jesus of Nazareth, and still is now. Christ was here before, G before the nativity and after the resurrection. As John tells us, he is the divine Logos through whom the universe was made, and his life is the light of all mankind. It's John 1, verses 3 through 4. That's why people say, is, is the, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I'm like, no, Christ is the Word of God. The Bible is a collection of books that point to the Christ. Uh, but in the beginning was the Word, not in the beginning was the Bible. There wasn't a, 
a, a collection of 66 books floating in outer space somewhere that was in the beginning. Uh, that was put <laughs> that was put together by a group of men in northern Africa uh, sometime after Jesus uh, was resurrected. He says, furthermore, Paul tells us that in him we all live and move and have our being as well as that the whole universe exists and is sustained in and through him. That's Colossians 1.17. So with this, in mind, with this in mind, Jesus is simply saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone knows God, they know him through me and my spirit at work within them. Jesus was simply saying that he is the embodiment of the universal Christ that John and Paul later attested to. By this, Jesus was both saying he is the inclusive universal reality that everyone can and does access and putting exclusive importance on his own life, teaching and person that signifies and clarifies this reality. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's a, a classic example of text jacking, of all things to take John 14, 6 and make it a... a um, an ultimatum, something exclusive. Uh, he didn't say no person who does not become a Christian. He says, no, he says anybody that comes to God, has, they've come through me. I've opened up this way. It's, it's, not a, it's not an either or, it's a yes and. I'll give you a classic example. Um, one thing, if, I mean, if you were even raised around the Bible Belt, you know John 3.16. Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I, I, on the expressway, I see uh, uh, 18-wheelers with John 3.16 on there. Some of you in ball, at ball games, you'll see a, a, a sign with John 3.16. John 3.16 is fine, but it's actually a conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him by night, and I'm getting back. I'm, I've got windows open here, so I'm going to get back to the context. Just hang on. Um Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you're from God because nobody could do these miracles except God was with him. And Nicodemus was troubled by it. That's why he came by night. I have lots of Nicodemuses or Nicodemi, if it's uh, plural, uh, people who message me, who won't tell anybody that they contact me all the time to ask for prayer and whatever, but they publicly will not, uh, they will, uh, they will not uh, acknowledge me. I call them Nicodemuses. And some of y'all are watching right now, and you know who you are. Anyway, um, Jesus says, unless a man's born again, he can't see the kingdom. In other words, he was saying, Nicodemus, you're so steeped in your theology that the only way you're going to get me is just to be born again. You'll, you'll just have to, you're just going to have to reboot. You're going to have to, uh, it, it, like, what is it? What do they do when you, when you get a new phone and they, they purge it? Not purge it, but they, they reboot it. They, you know, they... There's a word for it. Huh? Well, I guess they reset it. When he said you've you got to be born again, um, uh, he, he was saying it, it's like the, the device is going to just have to be reset because it's so contaminated with viruses. Uh, yeah, factory reset. Thank you, Jeanette. So um, that's what being born again meant. And... Um, he goes on to talk about salvation, and he says, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And he goes right into verse 17 that says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, that the universal world could be saved. Not Christians, but that the world could be saved. 
If you only quote John 3.16 and you don't acknowledge John 3.17, you're creating a false doctrine and you're putting words in Jesus' mouth that he never said. Furthermore, he was not saying them to... Um, he was not saying them to everybody. I don't think he said everybody must be born again. Let me just let you meditate on that for a minute. I think he was telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, he did say, unless a man's born again, he won't see the kingdom. But he was in that context, he was saying, you're coming at me with such a limited paradigm of who I am. You're just going to have to be born again. Born, again. born of the water, born of the spirit. Uh, thanks, Greg. So it gets better. Hang on. So, um, all right. So I agree with everything that Jacob Wright said in that passage. But then a couple of weeks ago, I used the mirror translation, which I personally think is the closest to what Jesus was actually saying. In John 14, 6, he says in the mirror translation, my, and he coins the phrase, I amness. I, capital I, capital A-M, dash N-E-S-S. My I amness mirrored in you is your way, your truth and your life. My I amness mirrored in you is, is your way. Um, not only is it not an, a, a verse of exclusion, it's probably the most inclusive verse that I could, I could present to you. All right. So when I taught on this, what, three weeks ago, initially it came out of somebody uh, messaging me and saying, why do, why do we still pray in the name of Jesus? If, if I am is the ultimate affirmation, which I believe it is. And I, I explained to them, I said, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think Romans 8, 29 says, Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. So when we're, and I went so far as to say in the teaching, when you pray in the name of Jesus, pray in your name as well. Because we are, this is a, this is one of those statements that Paul made that's so radical, uh, it kind of goes over our heads. But, but Paul actually said, we are joint heirs with Jesus. Joint heirs. That would mean, that would be like um, if Jeff Bezos had a son and you got a message that says, hey, Jeff Bezos' son wants you to become a joint heir with him, meaning everything that's coming to his son, his son is coming to you. That would completely change your life. And, and Paul just, just said it. We are joint heirs with Jesus. And so from that teaching, I talked about how Jesus didn't come to appease an angry sky God. And the, the only way that God somewhere can even stomach us is through the blood of Jesus. That's to me, that's a, an aberration and frankly, an insult to the cross. I think it's an insult to the atonement. Um, I love the cross. I love the atonement. Uh, I don't think, I don't think it was uh, what Christianity traditionally has said that it was. Frankly, I don't think it was Jesus trying to reveal himself. I think it was him revealing us to ourselves. It was the reversal of the creator saying to Adam, who told you you were naked? Jesus comes and says, well, I'll, I'll get naked. He was actually crucified naked on a cross to, I'll, I'll answer that for you. You are no longer, you are no longer naked. And now I'm going to go away so that you can become me. 
And remember that because if I don't say this, someone remind me of this. You know the the verse, greater work shall you do? It's in this chapter. It's cha it's uh, verse 12 of chapter 14. Um, well, let me go ahead and let me say this because this is very important. And sometimes I, I, I'll end up not saying something I meant to say. So hold that thought. Um, Jesus says to Peter, now all the other men are there. They're at the Last Supper. But he says to Peter, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, in my father's house are many monies. Many, when he says in my father's house are many rooms, he's basically saying there's room for all kinds of personalities, all kinds of people, just like you, Peter, who, yeah, you shoot off at the mouth all the time and you say crazy stuff. But, you're, you, you know, Peter was also the one on the day of Pentecost who stood up and said, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. That was amazing that Peter, who was not particularly a theologian, he was a fisherman, that he somehow connected the dots with this obscure prophecy from Joel. Like, that's kind of amazing. So the thing, the thing that's in your personality that you think is a negative was probably put there by God, and you just have to know how to manage it properly. Um, Paul, I mean, sometimes Peter spoke before he thought, but sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's good to speak something before you think. Um, I know sometimes I, some of the most powerful things I've ever said while I'm ministering, I just went ahead and said them because I thought if I think about this too much, I'm going to talk myself out of saying something that's radical. Most times it's better to think before you speak, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's better just to speak. Sometimes it's better just to bypass your brain and just speak right out of your belly. So um, in this passage, he says, let not your heart be troubled, Peter. Um, in my father's house are many monies, many places of ministry, even for people like you. And we see that at the end of John because he, 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 um, he comes to him and he says, uh, if you love me, feed my sheep. Meaning, don't beat yourself up for, um, not only is it forgiven that you... Um, uh, denied me. It's actually part of what makes you uniquely you. Uh, one of the worst things that Christianity ever did was uh, what I call clonism, where you know people decided if this is what a Christian is like, so if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to be like this person. Um, the whole concept of of um, Jesus being the cornerstone. Uh, I've shared this with you before, but the, the concept of cornerstone comes from stonemasons who, when, when they would cut stone for building, they would have a, a model called the cornerstone, or the, the actual word was a, a coping stone, so that every stone you cut had to be cut to the specifications of the original stone. Because if you made a copy and then a copy of the copy and a copy of the copy of the copy, it's, you're going to lose the integrity of the, of the dimension. So um, um, when it says when the scripture talks about Jesus being the cornerstone, it means uh, I can't I can't follow Jesus the way you follow him. I can't know my my relationship with God is the secret place of the Most High. That's why I can't judge your relationship with God because yours is completely unique to you. In my father's house are many rooms and your room may be decorated very differently from mine.
All right. So we've been we've been in this line of thinking, you know, my I am this mirrored in you is your way. And so in that teaching, I talked about uh, I might have talked about this the following week, but I was talking about how uh, most times when Jesus would heal someone, he would say, your faith has made you whole. I mean, Jesus was constantly nearly um, going covert. Like he would heal somebody and he'd say, look, don't even tell anybody I did this. Why, why would he do that? It's because he didn't come here to start Christianity. Christianity was the worst thing that ever happened to Jesus. Jesus hates Christianity uh, because it's it's the antithesis of what he came here to do. Uh, when Jesus talked to re religious people, he says, "You're of your father, the devil." He called he called religion the product of of what what they believed was the devil. Religion is this idea that you can control God and my idea of being godlike has to become your idea. And that's not, if you're going to believe that, then just throw away Jesus as the cornerstone. Your relationship with God is completely unique to you. I can't even have an opinion about it. It's like, that's that's your thing. The, the idea of the, when the Buddhists say namaste, it's the closest thing to our idea of saying Jesus is the cornerstone. In other words, you've, you have to, you have to work out your own salvation. All right. So we've been talking about this a lot. I've been meditating about it a lot. And this is what came to me this week. And what's interesting about what I'm about to share with you is I'm going to, I'm going to specifically talk about, um, I'm going to specifically talk about three different, uh, people in the gospels. And I have taught about all three of them a lot. These three stories I'm about to share with you are very much on my radar screen. Um, wait, hold that thought. Let me finish this thing out about John 14 because I, I got to make sure you get this. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, Peter. There's still a Monet for you in the Father's house. In my Father's house is room for all types of people. Um... In my father's house are many rooms is, is a very powerful statement for inclusion. Um, it, exclusion says, uh-uh, there's only one room and it's our, it's our way or the highway. And that's never what Jesus said. It's so opposite. When people say, do you believe that inclusion stuff? I'm like, yeah, because I follow Jesus. I've read, I've actually read the words in red. They came to the disciples came to Jesus and said, "There's a guy over here. We've never even met this guy, and he's he's doing things in, uh, supposedly in your name, but we we haven't vetted him. We haven't. He didn't. We didn't approve of him. He didn't go to our Bible school. And Jesus says, let him do his thing. Those that are not against us are for us. I mean, that concept is virtually absent from modern Christianity now." Everything about modern Christianity, or mostly about, well, denominationalism for sure, is uh, it's us versus them. The whole thing is built on us versus them. All right. So in the let me finish this John 14, and then we get to these three passages. Because I'm I'm going to say some things I've never said in 50 years, and they're they're still very 50 years of teaching. There's they're new to my mind. Um, 
But in this passage, um, let not your heart be troubled. In, in my father's house are many monets, many places of ministry for people just like you, people, de deniers. It's kind of like Jesus saying to the uh, woman at the well, the father is looking for worshipers just like you. And really, Jesus? Because I don't think you've, I don't think you've read this woman's, I don't think you've looked at her Facebook pro profiles. She's been married five times and is living with a guy now. And Jesus says, the Father's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So, he goes on to say, um, my I amness uh, mirrored in you is your way. And then he says, um, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also, comma, and henceforth you know him and have seen him. All right? So again, this is not a, an ultimatum. This is not a my way or the highway. He's saying, you already, you already see this. It's like, it's like Peter uh, standing up on, uh, in Acts chapter 17 in, on Mars Hill where he says, uh, He's talking to all these idol worshipers. And he says, I look around and I see all your temples and I see that you're the, the uh, King James says, I see that you're religious. The, the Greek actually says, I see that you're all seekers. And he says, the, the bottom line is he's not, he, he never used the name of Jesus. But he says, uh, there was a man who was crucified and he's not far from any of us. He uses he uses us. Um and it's in him that we live and move and have our being, as many of your own poets have said. In other words, this is already in your Greek mythology. Um, the, the gospel is, is everywhere. You, you see the gospel in movies. You hear it in songs. It's not limited, it's not limited to uh, 40 men from several thousand years ago who, who wrote you know, to a, a group of people and came up with 66 books in the Protestant canon. Catholic canon has includes the Apocrypha. It's another 13 books. Anyway, again, Bible's not a book. It's Ta Biblia, a collection of books. Um, if you say the Bible clearly says, that's like saying the library clearly says. No, the library says all kinds of things. All right. So, John 14, he says, uh, Henceforth you know him and have seen him. And then Thomas, of all people, the one we call Doubting Thomas, Thomas is the one who says, Well, uh, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And, and that's when Jesus says, I am the way, or better translated, My I am this mirrored in you is your way. And then... It's like they still don't get it. These guys are just, sometimes they would have these flashes of revelation, but most times they didn't. So Philip speaks up and he says, well, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus is like, dudes, that's what I'm telling you. You've already seen God and you already knew God. He, he, could, he could easily have said, you already knew God before I got here. You just didn't know that you knew God. Paul, you know, Paul wrote to the Galatians and he says, when it pleased the Lord who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal his son in me. In other words, I never had to ask Jesus to come into my heart. I'd already, I'd already known God. Christ had already been re re revealed to me. I just didn't know that I knew him. That's why, haven't you ever met somebody that is like a church person and they're like real 
judgmental and petty and depressed and upset. And then you meet somebody that doesn't know anything about the Bible, but they're like really loving and they help their neighbors and they're just real, and you know, they cuss a little bit, but they're, you know, they're the first one on the scene to help when somebody needs something. And you think, what's wrong with this picture? They, you know, they're, they're the ones that seem to know God. It's because they do. They just don't know that they know. But you know, Jesus even, like in the same breath, he's rebuking the Pharisees. He says to them, and the kingdom of God's in you. The kingdom of God's in everybody. They don't, they don't know it, but it's, if, if there's any, if there is such a thing as evangelism, evangelism is, is sharing the evangel, uh, which is the good news. The good news is you're already in. You just didn't know you were in. You've been here all along. Uh, again, I say, uh, the... Um, Scarecrow says to Glinda when she says, she's always had the power to go home. And he says, why didn't you tell her? She says, because she wouldn't believe me. She had to learn it for herself. All of us are having to learn it for ourselves. We, we, we have to learn to let that abide in us, which we are from the beginning. All right. So it's when he's talking to Philip, Philip says, um, uh, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And that's when in verse 12, he's like, Philip, listen to me. You're going to do greater works than me. That's It's John 14, 12. He says, greater works than this. This is why I'm leaving. Because as long as I'm here, you guys think that I'm God. And I've got to get out of the way so that you can find out that you're God. And let me say this. When I say I'm God, I think you all understand this. I'm not saying I'm the capital G sovereign of the universe that spoke all things into existence. That's craziness. What I'm saying is, is he's the vine, I'm the branch. Like I, I came out of, I came out of divinity, and um, uh, what he wants from me is to discover who I am and who I always have been. Uh, when he says, "My I amness mirrored in you is your way," in virtually the same breath, because Philip still doesn't get it. How do we find God? How do we find God? And he's like. Philip, dude, God is me. God is you. The reason I'm getting out of the way is so you guys can do greater works because my staying here is crippling you. You're never going to discover your divinity if you keep fixating on mine. I said it. Let that marinate. We're joined ears with Jesus. All right. Three stories, quickly. I've taught on this for years in uh, Mark chapter 5. It's the story of the woman with the issue of blood. She had had a, a female situation where she had had nonstop, like she had had a nonstop cycle for 12 years. And uh, I, I don't know what their version of... Um, um, what are woman doctors called? I can't think of the name. Gynecologist. gynecologist. I don't know. They had gynecologists then, but no, nobody could nobody could help her. And not only was would that deplete you um, physically, it says that she had spent everything she had. She'd gone to every doctor she knew. And she just could not. She couldn't stop hemorrhaging. And to make matters worse, you know the 
the uh, M Moses law was so patriarchal and, you know, Moses had real issue with women bleeding, uh, you know, and under Moses law, it's like when, when one of your wives is on her cycle, you put her out, put her out of the camp and, and cleanse every place that she's sad. And, you know, it was like real, real uh, misogyny in the Abrahamic religions. They just, they just is. I mean, Abraham comes up, he says, God told me the only way to be in the covenant is cut the end of your penis off with circumcision. So he basically comes up with like, here's, here's the ultimate way to exclude women. They're not even anatomically correct for the covenant. You've got to marry into the covenant. So, um, uh, this woman was a pariah in the community. People, I don't know how they knew, but they were like, she's, well, you know, some of you, uh, women, maybe in my age demographic, when your mother told you about your, uh, menstrual cycle, they called it the curse. They, they, they referred to it. Well, that's what, that comes from the Bible. People saying, well, you know, this, this woman has been under a curse for 12 years. And she says, if I can, when, she, when she heard about Jesus, she said, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Now, I've taught this for years. I've taught this for years uh, that what's interesting about the woman with the issue of blood is she created her own theology. Now, let me explain. Um... Uh, In the court system, in the legal system, everything is based on what we call precedent. That's why if there's the case of so and so Smith versus Jones or, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education, like the, the current um, court builds on the precedent of previous courts. Uh, one reason, and I, I don't want to get in the weeds about uh, a discussion about Roe versus Wade, but from a, a, a legal standpoint, the reason it's dangerous to go against precedent, there's a, a Latin word for it called stare decisis. And it basically means um, the current court will honor previous courts because of what has been um, uh, decided. And once you destroy that, you're, you're really in trouble. It's definitely a slippery slope because after a while, every previous decision starts unraveling and it's it's dangerous and i'm only i'm not trying to defend abortion i'm saying just from a legal standpoint uh and you know the uh, conservative judges that were sworn in all said no we will honor stare decisis and they completely went against what they what they said and it's just not again i'm not talking about abortion i'm saying from a legal standpoint it really compromises the court all right so the whole idea of precedent really comes into the scriptures if you are a legalist. Like, um, why would we anoint someone with oil and pray for them? Because there was a precedent set. James says, if there's any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and anoint him with oil. So precedent is, I can, I can, well, I used to hear this phrase a lot, I stand on a scripture. Give me a scripture and I'll stand on it. I'm, I'm not against that concept. As long as it doesn't limit you. Now, this woman who says, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Um, she's basically 
not considering precedent at all. Because there's nowhere in the scriptures, now later in the book of Acts, it says that handkerchiefs and aprons were taken off of the body of Paul and laid on people. And that's where in the Pentecostal church, we used to do prayer cloths. That's where that came from. But until that, and that was a unique thing to Paul, until that happened, um, there was no scripture that says the Messiah will have magic clothes or clothes that can heal you. So that if this woman had said to one of her friends, hey, what do you think? You, I, I feel like if I touch the uh, Jesus clothes when he comes by, that my, uh, my disease is going to be healed. Anybody that knew the scriptures would have said, I don't know, that sounds pretty out there. There's no, there's no chapter and verse for that. And that's precisely what set this woman apart. This woman, hear me, discovered her divinity, okay? Because it says when she touched Jesus, he felt that virtue went out of him. Now, Jesus healed a lot of people in the Gospels. It's the only time we ever hear that he was physically affected by it. There's no other place in the scriptures that says Jesus felt people being healed. But on this one, he felt it. Because he, he turned to his disciples and he said, who touched me? And they said, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touched you. And he said, no, something's different about this touch. Now, when I've taught this traditionally, I've said, wow, this woman had some serious kind of faith because she pulled out of him. And there's a, there's a whole, um, there's a whole uh, symmetry to the idea that sh her disease made her hemorrhage blood, but she caused Jesus to hemorrhage, if you will, virtue like the woman with the flow of blood caused caused the flow of virtue so there's a whole teaching in that and i'm not look i'm not um i'm not nullifying anything i've taught about this previously i'm adding to it i'm taking the diamond and turning it a little bit so that the light hits another facet okay now this is what and i don't know that i if, if i knew this a week ago I don't know that I knew it, but I know it now. I know it like I know my name. Um, Jesus felt virtue come out of that woman because his I amness was her way. She did something that was completely unprecedented. Let, let me explain to you. I don't get too many Bible stories here, but let, let me explain to you how precedent works. Classic example from the scripture. David hears that when he's a kid, he hears that his brothers are off fighting. And he hears that this giant, Goliath of Gath, is challenging all the men of Israel. And they're all intimidated by him. They're all afraid to fight him. So in the 17th chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, David takes food to his brother Eliab. Or Eliab. And... Um, he says, what's going on with everybody? And Eliab says, well, this giant's threatening us and we're all terrified of him. And, and David's like, are you kidding me? Like, what? He's only nine feet tall. I mean, not nine feet is, it's not like Goliath was this big and they were this big. I mean, there's NBA players that are seven feet tall. That's not even that unusual now. So, I mean, you could make eye contact with him, but he somehow got inside their head and uh, everybody was afraid of him. And David's like, he's like this little wiry teenager. And he says, well, I'll go fight him. 
And, and his brother, in the King James, his brother says, I know the naughtiness of thine heart. In other words, you are so full of yourself, David. Like, who do you, like we're all soldiers, and we're afraid to go one-on-one -on -one with this guy. You're going to go? And he says, all I can tell you is, um, I killed a bear, and I killed a lion. I can kill this uncircumcised Philistine. And so he's so plucky and, and just full of what in Yiddish they call chutzpah, that they said, well, let's let's take him to Saul and see what Saul says. And Saul tries to talk him out of it. And Saul's so blown away by this kid's attitude, and the other guys are so pathetic and afraid that uh, Saul's like, you know what? What have we got to lose? Let's try it. This kid's willing to, if he's willing to go for it. But they put Saul's armor on David, and and because that's the precedent. This is the way you fight. You put the armor on. So David puts it on and he can't wear it. He says, look, if I'm going to go after this giant, I've got to do it my way. And that's when, because he knew, he knew the way of the brook. He knew the way of the stone. I mean, he had spent his entire teenage years throwing rocks at, at targets. And he knew he was like a, a, a good shot. And he basically said, I can't wear Saul's armor. I have to do it this way. And you know the story. He goes and he finds five smooth stones because that's what he's used to. And he hurls the stone and it hits Goliath and kills him on the first, um, the first shot. It's a classic example of even the pre-incarnate Christ saying, my I amness in David was his way. David had to do it <laughs> to coin a phrase. I did it my way. I mean, we've been so taught in traditional Christianity to conform, and everything about Jesus' ministry was about nonconformity. It was break out from the pack. In my father's house are many Monets. There's room for all kinds of ideologies and all kinds of thought systems. So this woman, I believe, pulled virtue out of Jesus, not because of her faith. Other people got healed by their faith. She got healed because of his I amness mirrored in her becoming her way. When she came up with something that there was no scripture for and says, I just believe if I could touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And Jesus is like, all right, wow. I was waiting for somebody I was for waiting for somebody to get this. You got Philip and the disciples going, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? And this woman's like, I'll be God. This Jesus is a healer? Fine. I'm going to grab his clothes. And she does. She could have said any number of things, but that was what she chose. She became, as Paul said, a living epistle written in the hearts of men. So that's the first one. Second one is, um, what was the second one? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I know what the third one was. There's a second one I'm talking to. Oh, yes. Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha were sisters of Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. All right. There's a story about Jesus being in the home of Mary and Martha and um, as was the custom, once the men started talking about, uh, once the men started talking about philosophy or theology, 
they set the women out of the room. The women went to talk about stuff that women folk talk about. If you ever saw um, Streisand's movie Yentl, it was a story uh, by um, a man named Singer, who um, it's about a little Jewish girl who wanted to learn the Torah, but yeshiva schools were only for boys. So she um, she poses instead of a uh, her name was Yentl. Um, her um, she assumed she went in drag. She she dresses like a boy and calls herself Anshul, so that she could go to the yeshiva school because traditionally. And, and this is still true in the Middle East. I mean, there's Middle Eastern countries now that won't allow women to even go to school. The misogyny says if you keep women ignorant, they won't ask for their rights. They'll stay in their place. If you educate women, they'll start thinking they're equal to men. So the whole idea is keep them dumb. All right. So when it comes time for the Jesus start doing his thing, um, Martha goes into hostess mode and she goes and begins to prepare the meal for them. Now, that's not in and of itself. That's not a negative thing. It was her home. She was domestic. And, you know, it wasn't like they could call Uber Eats when church was over. I mean, you, if there was any food, she, she was the one that had to chase a chicken down and wring its neck and pluck it and do all. I mean, there, there was a lot to it. Okay. So, um, uh, Suddenly she realizes, why am I alone in the kitchen by myself? And she looks out and, and here's her sister Mary, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, just taking it all in. Now, typically when I've taught this, and again, I don't retract the previous meaning I'm adding to it. My theology is yes and, it's not either or. All right. Um, when I've taught this before, and I've even taught it this way, that inside everybody is a Mary and a Martha. And the Martha part of you is the part that gets in the weeds trying to micromanage everything. Oh, let me finish this thought. She goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, please tell my sister to come in the kitchen and help me. And Jesus says she's chosen the good part. Um, I don't think we realize how radical Jesus was how progressive Jesus was. Uh, Jesus was a feminist. Uh, he was not homophobic. He never, never mentioned anything about uh, same-sex relationships. Uh, he's very much about being in tune with helping the poor. Uh, he said, "If you," he, he was, he was nonviolent. He said, "If you live by the sword, you die by the sword." Modern politicians have created a Jesus that is nothing like the Jesus we've read about in the Bible. <clears throat> Jesus was not white. He was not, um, he was not uptight. He was not, many of the things that people in the Western, especially American church have said, have, have created a Jesus that never existed. Still doesn't. It's, it's, he put that Jesus in the category with unicorns and leprechauns and the tooth fairy. No, no such a thing. So, um, and here's my point in saying this. When he says she's chosen the good part, typically when I've taught this before, I've said the Martha part of you gets things done, but also 
obsesses over micromanaging everything, and sometimes you just have to choose the good part. And I've even said before, when I get too um, distracted about minutia, I'll say I need to put down the Martha and exalt the Mary. The, the Mary is the one who chooses the good part. So traditionally, I've always taught this to say, the good part was spiritual things are more important than cooking dinner, okay? And yes, there is still an element of truth about that. But in this day and time, for this woman to be sitting out there with the men was unheard of. Women didn't do that. Once the men began to, began to pontificate, and you remember like in Gone with the Wind when they start talking about the Civil War and the, guy, the men are all in there smoking their cigars and the women go take a nap. It's, it's that kind of idea. Um, well, Mary's, she's like gentle. She's like out there with the men, you know, discussing spiritual things. Now, we read that today and we think, well, so what? She just was real spiritual. No, she was radical. Because basically what Martha said is she's not acting like a woman. This is not what women do. Our, our mother told us that women are supposed to be here in the kitchen cooking dinner for all these men. The men are the smart ones. The men are the spiritual ones. I mean, Paul was so obsessed with this idea that he says Christ is the head of the man and the man is the head of the woman. And then later he comes back and says, all right, all right. And Christ is neither male nor female. It had to have hurt Paul to say that because Paul definitely, uh, let's just say no, no woman ever washed Paul's feet with her hair. Paul was like, tell women to shut up. Do not usurp authority over men. You know, Paul was trained by Moses, not by Jesus. Uh, so anyway, when he says, um, uh, when she says, tell her to come in here and act like a lady. She's out there with the men acting like she's equal with them. She doesn't know what he's talking about. Mary, who do you think you are? Us women folk don't understand these big ideas like that. And uh, Jesus says she's chosen the good part. So I believe that when he felt virtue go out of him for the one with the issue of blood, his I amness mirrored in her became her way. I believe that when Mary, and you can make a case that she was being lazy and not helping out, certainly that's the way Martha probably interpreted it. But in Mary's eyes, she was like, I don't know when Jesus is going to be back here again. I'm, I'm not going to miss this meeting to go cook for these guys. I don't even know these men. I'm, I'm standing here with the, I'm, it's, I'm not just being lazy. I'm, I'm helping. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing the right thing. I mean, Jesus could multiply loaves and fish. Martha, why are you so obsessed with cooking for everybody? So Jesus basically said, uh, my I amness mirrored in Mary is her way and it exceeds the limitations of gender. It's basically saying she's already got this revelation that in Christ is neither male nor female. All right. Third thing, and I have referred to this a lot. I'm going to refer to it again. Eighth chapter of Matthew, Jesus is ministering a Roman centurion. Centurion, uh, uh, means, uh, C-E-N-T, like a century is a hundred years. A centurion meant a captain over 100 men. That's what a centurion was. 
this Roman centurion who is a pagan, he doesn't worship Jehovah God, might not even believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He just heard that Jesus could heal people. Okay? And um, so out of his 100 men, he has this one man that he has a relationship with. Now, the Greek, he, he uses the word P-A-I-S, pious. It could be, I haven't studied this, but it, it could be where the Italian word paisan comes from. Um, but whatever, it, let me tell you how it's interpreted. Or pais, I think is the way it's pronounced. Um, sometimes it means son. Sometimes it means, and this was not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be dirty and I don't have any gay agenda here. I'm just telling you in the Roman empire, men didn't, um, they didn't identify as gay as modern gay people would. But like when these warriors would go off on these great pilgrimages, they didn't take women with them. They took young boys with them who were there for sexual gratification. They just were. I'm not trying to make this R-rated, but if you read the biographies of people like Alexander the Great or something, that was their their idea of sexuality was much more fluid than the people who came out of the Abrahamic religions. So, um, as I've studied this, the way this term is mostly used was... a an older man who's in a some sort of relationship that's more than just a bromance. It's romantic and or sexual. Uh, and it refers to a younger man. It's like an older man who has a relationship with a younger man. And in that context, that's probably what this man was talking about because he says, I have a hundred men but one of them is my boo, is basically what he was saying. And, and Jesus knew exactly what he meant. And without thinking, he says, yeah, I'll come healing. And the man says, no, 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 no. It's, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. In other words, I think I know enough about, I mean, Moses did say, yes, it's an abomination for a man to lie with another man as with a woman. Of course, Moses also said that, 613 other things are abominations. Moses was just putting the A label on just about everything. Shaving the sides of your face, wearing blended fabrics, uh, eating shrimp. I mean, he, Moses was, you know, he was stamping abomination on everything. Um, but it, this man apparently had enough of an understanding of Mosaic law that he was like, no, I don't want you to I don't want you to come to our place. I don't want you to see what our relationship is like. He says, just speak a word only and my servant will be healed because I say, I've got a hundred men. And I say to this man, go and he goes. I say to this man, come and he comes. And your words will do, uh, will do for you what my men do for me. Okay. And Jesus sends the word to heal, uh, the young man, and um, he turns to his disciples and says, that's the greatest faith I found in Israel. Now, the way I have traditionally taught this is, well, yeah, it was the greatest faith because this man understood the power of words and the authority of words. And 
Again, I'm not retracting that statement. I do think that is part of it. However, he's not the only man that, that uh, only person that Jesus spoke healing to. Um, so what was different about this guy? Because he turns and he says, that's the greatest faith I found in Israel. This is what I believe. Judge it however you will. But basically what he was saying is, is, you know what's incredible about this guy? He knows what somebody who's familiar with Mosaic law would think about a relationship like that. And yet he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid I was going to reject him. And he asked for his young boyfriend to be healed. And he said, that's amazing. See, again, I believe this pagan, Jesus was saying, my I amness mirrored in you is, is your way. Um, see, when we read now, uh, when we read um, uh, Matthew chapter five, when Jesus goes up on the mountain and he says, um, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, if you've even hated your brother, you're a murderer. You have heard it said, do not put your wife or one of your wives away except for adultery. I say, if you've even fantasized about adultery, you've committed it. And he goes to this whole thing where he says, he, it's like, it would be like taking a Bible and just ripping it in half and saying, I know this is what you heard, but this is what I'm saying now. I want my amnes mirrored in you to become your way, your truth, and your life. So that, do we throw away our Bibles? No. Precedent has its place. Precedent can be a faith builder. The reason we believe somebody can walk on the water is because Peter walked on the water. However, I don't know of anybody else in history who ever did it. I think that miracle was unique to him. And I think what, if you don't understand that his I amness mirrored in you is your way, you'll never walk in the supernatural because you're limited to the precedent of somebody else's experience. The reason, um, the reason we can read the scriptures and it does build our faith is not to emulate what somebody did, but to say, wow, if they were cheeky enough to go out just to, you know, um, this woman with the issue of blood creates her own doctrine of healing. I mean, if you'll notice, there's nothing after that. It's not like they took Jesus' robe and cut it up and said, come get your healing piece of healing Jesus robe. No, it was she healed herself. She healed herself. What drew the mm, what drew the virtue out of him is she healed herself. You can say, but it was his virtue. No, the virtue. Listen, 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 please. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The virtue flowed out of him, not because he healed her, but because she got it. In her case, it was not about healing. It was about his I amness mirrored in her becoming her way. 
when we read um, Mary has chosen the good part, it does. It's I'm not using as an example that everybody should completely throw away gender roles. I mean, I you know. I'm not against what, whatever your definition of masculinity or femininity. That's that's your that's your choice. I will say this: um, you can't judge somebody else's idea of what's masculine or feminine, because Jesus clearly. Did, it's not like Jesus heard Martha say that and said, "Yeah, Mary, what what are you doing out here? You get in that kitchen and rustle us up some grub." That's what that's what women's work. That's what women are supposed to do. You're not supposed to be out here acting like a man. Um, and and you got this guy again. I w- I wouldn't call him gay in the modern sense. I'm saying in in Roman culture, love was love, sex was sex. I mean, for good or for bad, the the, the ancient Rome weren't affected by Puritanism or by legalism from Moses. Uh, Basically, the only um, reluctance that the centurion could have had is, "Eh, this guy's understanding what I'm asking. He may judge me for it. And that's what Jesus was applauding him for. Jesus was saying, you got it. I came to show you not to get you to worship me. I came to show you that my I amness mirrored in you is your way. I am the firstborn among many brethren. I am the first fruits of the dead. I, 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 it is necessary for you that I go away so that you can do greater works. Do you understand what he's saying there in John fourteen twelve? Not hang on, and one of these days you're going to do what I do. He's like, no, I want you to completely surpass me. Write your scriptures. Come up with your concept for healing. Whatever works for you. The reason why so many of your prayers haven't worked is you're meant to be David, but you're walking around in Saul's armor trying to do it Saul's way, and Saul's way isn't going to work for you. That's not to say that that should become military procedure for the rest of Israel's army. It wasn't like after David killed Goliath, they all you know, said, all right, men, everybody take off your armor and go down to the creek and get you some rocks. No, it didn't become policy. It was unique to David. One thing that I really learned years ago from the um, faith movement that I don't hear enough teaching on is that the... The Greek word for word has two different translations. One of them is logos, L-O-G-O-S, which is the word written to everyone. In the beginning was the was the logos. And the other one is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. And the, the rhema word is when you take a part of the logos and you personalize it. Or you could even say it this way, the logos empowers you to find the rhema. The rhema is the word that is specifically to you. Um, If you're going to wear a what would Jesus do bracelet, understand that what Jesus would do is tell you to do you. Jesus would say, 
My I amness mirrored in you is your way. Yeah, Jesus went to the cross, but he also said, take up your cross and follow me. How do we follow Jesus? We follow Jesus into our own uniqueness. I know this opens new neuropaths in your brain because we were taught, be like Jesus, be like Jesus, be like Jesus. All right, fair enough. How was Jesus? He was a complete rabble-rousing nonconformist. Jesus basically like went to all the wrong parties. If you knew the if you knew the um parties that Jesus went to, you would clutch the pearls. You would be like, oh, I can't believe that Jesus would go to a party. Remember, he's he's at a party and a a hooker might be too strong a word, but uh, harlot comes in and washes his feet with her hair. And it goes on for a really long time. This is a woman who knows how to seduce men. And if you read Luke chapter 7 in the Amplified Bible, it's, it sounds really intimate. It's like she was washing his feet and kissing his feet. And it went on for a, a period of time that it became awkward in the room. And the man who was... The, whose house it was, he says, um, uh, this man, if he was really a prophet of God, she would, he would know what kind of woman she is. And Jesus reads his thoughts and he says, I know what she does. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loves much. I mean, Jesus was so, honestly, I don't care how open-minded you think you are. If you hung out with Jesus, I guarantee you, you would be shocked. At his, some of his friends, some of the places he went, he didn't care. He didn't care who saw him there. He made himself no reputation. All the stuff that we spent so much energy on in traditional Christianity, making sure that people towed the line and, and made sure they acted righteous and holy. And Oh, you ain't saved if you wear a dress like that. That wasn't even, in Je that wasn't even on Jesus' radar screen. He never talked about people's sex lives. He never talked about... You know, purity matters. When he talked about when he says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God," he was uh, he was talking about um, when you remove the impurities of wrong thinking, you'll just automatically see God. When the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and Uzziah lifted up. Once you remove the obstruction, God's right in your face. God's been there all along. You haven't been searching for God. You can't get any closer to God than you already are. You can't become more divine than you already are. You can only awaken to it. The divinity is in you so that when his I amness mirrored in you becomes your way, you wake up and you say, oh, yes, I, I love the scriptures. The scriptures tell me, they show me stories of hero, heroes who did it their way, and the way I'm supposed to interpret it is not to try to emulate them. And so much of religion frowns on individualism and uniqueness. Religion is, you know, give everybody a uniform and make everybody act the same way. And Jesus is like, no, you do you, you be you. Let me show you how to do this. My I amness mirrored, reflected in you. You know what? I'm, I gotta, I gotta shut up. But you know when um, in the King James version, when Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen, "Now we see through a glass darkly." Do you know that what the Greek actually says? 
It says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Because mirrors in his time were not made out of glass. They were made out of brass. And the, the more you polish them, the clearer the reflection was. So when he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Listen to this. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. When God is revealed to you, you find yourself. When you find yourself, God is revealed to you. And I tell you this, if we believe God is love, if whatever spiritual path you're on is not making you more loving, you're not waking up to your divinity. His I amness is not being mirrored in you. Because if it's a trajectory toward divinity, if it's a trajectory toward his I amness being mirrored in me, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, if it's if it's making you meaner and more hateful and posting more divisive stuff on social media and being more uh, judgmental of people. And it ain't God. It's something else. It's whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. But if it ain't making you more loving, because he says, now we know in part, but then shall we know even as also, then I shall know even as I also I am known. And he ends the chapter by saying, now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you're not, if, if you are getting more judgmental and more opinionated as you get older, you are knowing God less and less. You are, you are, you are taking on uh, the righteousness that is filthy rags. If, however, your revelation of God is making you more open-minded and loving and uh, it doesn't make, make you passive. And yes, you still speak up for injustice. I'm not saying that you just you certainly don't let people walk all over you. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Being loving doesn't mean you become a doormat for somebody or that you lose your opinions. It means you're like, no, the, the God revealed in me is making me see myself. When I look in the reflection, I see God. I see God. I mean, I mean as I get older, uh, when I look in the mirror, I, I, I look more and more like my, my biological father. I, I see that DNA in me. I can't deny it. I can't deny that I am his biological son. Um, waking up to your divinity is realizing I came out of God. I'm going back to God. While I'm here, God is being revealed in me. And the only way I'm going to walk in revelation is to find my own way, which is ultimately his I amness mirrored in me. All right. Whew. I feel like I just gave birth. <laughs> Did the doctor say you have something to eat now? Because I just birthed something. All right. Um, I'll go read your... Uh, it looks like y'all have been real chatty. So I'll go read your... Um, um, comments. Um, please remember to give to uh, the ministry. 
Uh, it's easy to do. Just go to bishinthenow.com. Bish, like short for bishop. Uh, you can do it with a click of a button. If you want to give to me directly, you can do that. You just won't get tax credit for it. Um, we still have overhead, and um, but we we will always will always have I'll always have money. I can I can tell you this. I will always have money if I want to do something. Uh, the finances will always be there. I I I cannot say otherwise. Uh, if if it means um, finding money in the fish's mouth or ravens coming to feed me, I will always have not just enough. I will have more than enough. I am I am of that. I am certain. But if you believe in what we're doing, give, and it helps us with the practical things like renting the theater and paying the tech team and paying me, thank you very much, and um, giving to the um, ministries that we give to every month and um, or organizations and paying the musicians when they come in. Uh, so thank you for your faithfulness. Yes, I have all the cash apps. Um, hope to see you on September 4th. And if you're not signed up for um, meditation weekend number 16, please do so. You'll, you will not regret it, all right? Remember, his I amness mirrored in you is your way, your truth, and your life. Peace.